Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is October the 9th, 2017. This episode 2095 of the Survival Podcast. And I've got a good one for you, uh, because it's your show. You guys wrote it. <clears throat> I got a bunch of stuff, a little bit from my end. I've got uh, some info on something called the Quail Tracker. It's coming soon, finally after over a year of uh, work on our end on the backside. My partners, uh, Brad and Steve, are ready to bring that product out. It'll probably be released next week. I'll tell you just a little bit about it today. Uh, then I have a fun segment for you called Having Fun with Telemarketers. I figure it's a new week. We discuss deep, heavy stuff every week. We'll discuss some of that today. So why not have a little bit of laughter mixed in with this? And if you're driving when I talk about this, if you out of the person has kind of a, a heavy, funny bone, be careful you don't run off the road. I don't think it's that funny, but apparently sometimes I cause danger for people using power tools, driving, etc. Uh, an update on cannabis meat and some alternatives that are legal to it everywhere, not just legal in some places and maybe uh, more useful, uh, an example of a Leo shakedown that ended well, but is not okay. This is the type of shit, and for some of you guys that are cops out there, I want you to listen to this one, and I want you to listen with a little mind, and I promise I'm not going to lose my shit over this. Right? I'm not going to have a jack friggin' rant over this or nothing, but I want you to understand why this is not okay, even though I know this is what you're trained to do. And if you email me as a cop and say, I'm not trained to do this, My response is, well, I'm not going to call you a liar, and maybe you're not. But then you damn well know that many law enforcement officers are, and this is not okay, and I'll tell you why. Um, thoughts on new styles of nonstick cookware? I have some thoughts on that, and pretty much why I've gone all the carbon and cast uh, with most of my cookware. Uh, some big libertarian anarcho what-ifs, and why they're not valid in reality. Um, has my buddy Vin Armani lost his mind on the Vegas shooting since he seems to think This is a military drone experiment. I'll tell you why I do not agree, but why I am not going to hold it against him. Um, thoughts on wicking beds and setting the levels in them, etc., with constant flow wicking beds. I have a question on that. Choosing to work with or take out trees for small-scale homesteading and tiny houses versus small houses. There's a big difference. We'll talk about all that more in just a bit. Before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is westernbotanicals.com. Look, guys, Western Botanicals is the company to go to for all your herbal needs. If you're not sure what you need, give them a call. Real people will answer the phone and help you make your decisions. If you don't want something that's already prepared but you need raw herbs and are having trouble finding it or materials to make things like really good beeswax or menthol uh, crystals for making deep heat rubs and things like that, they have everything. The goal at Western Botanicals is to put an herbalist in every home in America. That's a noble, servant-minded goal. They're real people. They do not deal in bullshit and false claims like many people in that sector do. They do not claim to have cure-alls. They just provide the best herbal uh, preparations and raw herb uh, individual components uh, that you could find anywhere online. And remember, they give away their discount membership, which is a $50 product for free to all MSB members, effectively paying for your first, beer, uh, first year of MSB. So they really are a great supporter, been with us a long time. Next up today, Self-Reliance Magazine. From the folks that brought you Backwoods Home that will be sending out their last issue uh, this quarter as we go into the final quarter 
of uh, 2017. Backwoods Home has come to an end. But Self-Reliance Magazine is the new you know, 21st century uh, leap forward for Backwoods Home. Now, I was a Backwoods Home Magazine subscriber for t- over 20 years. I have been a subscriber to Backwoods Home Magazine for longer than I have known my wife. And I'll tell you what, I'm really excited about Self-Reliance Magazine. I think they've really brought things up a level. They've come into the modern age, and they know it's time to make that transition. So check them out at selfrelianceMagazine.com, and uh, they do have discounts for you if you're an MSB member as well. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was from history. Uh, We had an addition to the year 62, so I'll go ahead and read that before we move on to the year 63. This year, in the year 62, Nero who's our about-to-go-completely-psychopathic emperor, gets a divorce. Contributed by David Verne. Nero has been carrying on an affair with Popina Sabina. She was the wife of one of Nero's friends who she divorced several years ago. Popina convinces Nero to divorce his wife, Claudia Octavia, and he does so on grounds of infertility. He marries Popina 12 days after the divorce and banishes Claudia to the island of Pat- Paderita. Nero is shocked by the backlash from the population who liked Claudia and can't believe he divorced her. There are demonstrations in Rome where statues of Claudia are paraded through the streets. Nero is so frightened that he agrees to remarry her, but secretly orders her execution. News reached Rome several days later of Claudia's quote-unquote suicide, but everyone knew what had happened. This was the beginning of Nero's slip on power. My take by David Verne, everyone has a breaking point. Governments can only do so much before people get sick of it and put a stop to it. It was at this point in Nero's reign that several senators started a conspiracy to assassinate him. Yeah, I think this is one thing people do not realize is that any government, no matter how totalitarian, will look to the people and wonder what they can get away with and will use some trepidation in doing certain things because they know there's a point at which people will snap their shit. And this is a, this is a constant that I think some people are just like, they live in freaking Disneyland and they cannot understand. There's a point at which people will not accept the governorship of the state, and at that point they become ungovernable. You cannot put the genie back in and revolution becomes inevitable. We're seeing this right now in Catalonia with Spain. The more Spain refuses to allow Catalonia to protest through things like voting and resolutions about wanting independence, the more likely they make eventual independence to be the result. That's just the reality. Another example is the liberal left. And you know me, I don't pick a side in this left-right false dichotomy of, of government. But we do have very distinctive viewpoints of people. Leave the government out, the the, the senators, the congressmen, all that shit. Leave it out. But the people of this country really are divided heavily into left and right. And the left really thinks, they really think if they pass gun bans, that people will give up their guns. They really believe that. These people live in effing Disneyland. There are about 50 million people in America that own guns. And the majority of those people are strong supporters of the Second Amendment. Tens of millions of them, not all of them, but tens of millions of them are willing to die and shed blood to defend that right. Tens of millions, including huge numbers of the military community and the law enforcement community. Translation, the people with the guns are not willing to allow themselves to be disarmed. 
They're not. It's not going to happen. You can pass any laws you want. And the danger of, of gun control is the incremental approach, making more and more things illegal, taking more and more things away, where the, the, the people who do own the guns will tolerate it. But there's a breaking point. There's a breaking point. And if you don't think there's a breaking point, you live in freaking Disneyland. You really freaking do. And governments tend to not live in Disneyland. Nero lived in Disneyland. Nero thought he could do anything because of who he was. You're talking a calculated mistake that was massively miscalculated in this one decision here. And what happens usually when a state begins this is what you'll see with Nero. They double down, and they double down, and they double down, and they make it worse and worse and worse. And what will eventually happen is the people that you believe will protect you when you're the state will stand by and laugh as you are torn to shreds. That's what happens eventually. There's a lesson there in the modern day. I hope people have their ears open and their eyes open and are willing to hear it, though I, I really believe that they don't. Next up, if you like this show and the work that we do, please remember that you can help support us by joining the Member Support Brigade. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members. You'll get tons of discounts. You get a lot of great content you can't get anywhere else. Uh, and your discounts will more than pay for your membership. You also get every episode of TSP ever recorded and convenient zip files if you so choose to download them in groups of 24 apiece. So you can go back and binge out from episode one all the way up to 2095 where we are today. With that, let's go ahead and get into uh, the main topics of today's show. Again, the first two segments I have really aren't listener feedback. The one sort of kind of is. The first one definitely isn't. I have been working with a gentleman named Steve and a gentleman named Brad on a product we're calling Quail Tracker, T-R-A-C-K-R, uh, like, uh, you know, because it moves, the Quail Tracker. Now, Steve is a professional cage builder. He's been building uh, cages and animal containment systems for over 30 years, and it is his full-time business. Brad is kind of a, a self-described expert on quail. We actually had him on uh, the Survival Podcast uh, quite a few years ago. Uh, he's known on the forums as Moon Valley Prepper, and he did an episode with me on quail, God, I guess three years ago. There's a hell of a lot of people in the TSP audience, myself included today, that are keeping and raising quail because of Brad Davies. So Brad and Steve and I have been working on this, this concept. We found that it was a little bit more difficult than we thought to get everything right, but we're going to be launching a Kickstarter, most likely as it is right now, on Monday of next week, where we will have the Quail Tracker product and all the available accessories. It's a really cool thing. The big things that I think you know, make this exciting is we work to develop basically a quail tractor that you can move without worrying about killing or letting your quail get away. It's contained on the bottom, top, all sides, but yet the quail can access the ground and pick through it. It's lightweight. I'm telling you, uh, you know, a, a small suburban housewife that's 115 pounds soaking wet uh, with a box of rocks in her pocket could pick this thing up and move it. It works with a tremendous number of accessories, and it's made with the highest quality materials you can get. The shipping's going to seem a bit high on it, but we actually worked really hard to get it as low as possible. Bulky items are expensive to ship. What we developed was a way, I should say Steve developed, was a way that we can ship, let's say, the big tracker unit itself 
in two pieces folded flat, about 65-70% assembled, along with some split rings and a little pair of split ring pliers. And anybody with an IQ above like 80 can put this thing together. It might take, you know, two sets of hands will be a little bit more helpful, but I put two together by myself the first time. No, didn't even bother following the instructions and had no problem to do it. It was really, there's one way it can go together. And once you know how to do a split ring with a pair of split ring pliers, you're good to go. Um, it can, it has multiple doors. You can access it multiple ways. Built-in feeding systems, built-in watering systems, uh, the ability to use a, a multitude of accessories, uh, including something that functions as a coop or a compost bin. Uh, lots of really cool stuff. I will probably put out a form tomorrow for people that want to be uh, informed as soon as the Kickstarter launches uh, about it. But I just wanted to let you know it's coming. That's all I want to say about it so far today. Next, I want to talk to you about, I want to give you a little bit of fun stuff for the week, right? Make you laugh a little bit. Uh, so I want to tell you about some fun I've been having with telemarketers. I put this out on Facebook today, by the way, in a little, just a text post. Some You may have seen it or heard it already. If you haven't, I think it'll give you some amusement. So I've been getting a ton of robocalls to my cell phone, which I should not because I'm on the national do not call list. And yeah, you can report them and blah, 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 blah. And yeah, there's things that block it, blah, 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 blah. But in the end, um, a lot of these numbers are turned up for a day used and abandoned so they don't get blocked by a lot of apps and things like that and in the end when you hear what i'm doing you'll see why maybe you don't want to block them anyway what i do is if i'm busy and i see a number i don't recognize on my phone i just don't answer it i mean that's that's my standard protocol anyway but if i'm not busy anymore if i have some time i answer it and i i know that 90 percent of the time when i get a call from a u.s number uh, and it'll be, you know, it could be a local number. It could be like California and Illinois. Those seem to be the three big ones I get. Uh, Texas, California, Illinois, for some reason. Um, I, I know nine times out of ten it's going to be a telemarketing robot. And I've been getting a couple interesting ones lately. You may recognize them when I, when I describe them. One's about your student loans, and the other one's about your car's extended warranty. And it's some chick, and she's like, you should have received something in the mail about your car's extended warranty. We've been trying to reach you about your car's extended warranty. And she says, warranty, really, really weird. And, you know, it's like, if you'd like to be on our do not call list plus two. Okay, well, I've had this call from this chick a lot more times than two, and I've pressed two a lot more times from two, and yet she still calls me to tell me that they've been trying to reach me about my car's extended warranty, and I should have gotten something in the mail about my car's extended warranty, which is all bullshit, by the way. So what I decided to do was, if you're going to waste my time, why don't I waste yours? So what I've started doing is it'll say, you know, to, to be on our no call list, press two. If you want to be on our, our uh, you know, if you want to talk to a rep about your car's extended warranty or your student debt or whatever, uh, press four. So I press four and a little music will go and then somebody will come on the line and go, uh, hello, uh, what year is your car? And I'll say something like, it's a 2014. And they'll usually not quite understand me because I kind of faded out a little bit like that. A little 2015. I'm sorry, did you say 13? No, 2015. Did you say 15? No, 14. One, four, two, zero. One four. My car is a two zero one four twenty fourteen. Okay, okay. I'm sorry, sir. I didn't mean to do, to do that. And how many miles are on your car? Oh, rate right about eighty thousand. Oh, good, good, great. Because see, they're looking for people with the right year and number of miles on their car to qualify for their ripoff extended warranty. So they'll say that, and they'll say, okay, well, what make and model is your car? And I'll say something like, oh, it's a uh, 2014 Batmobile. And I usually get a response like. F you without F. They say the full word and they hang up on me. Uh, I, I've also, 
<laughs> you could drag like you could drag it out longer if you want to. You know, you could say it's a Ford, a Ford what? Oh, it's a Ford Model A, which most of them don't know that a Model A was from the 20s anymore. So they'll try to look it up and have trouble finding it, etc. And that's when you can say something like, and I know it wasn't made in 1914, but they don't. You say something like, I'm sorry, did I say 2014? I meant 1914. Then you get an FU and a hang-up. Uh, I had one call me about my student loan debt, and they know they can help me because they've reviewed my account, which is interesting since, as you know, I didn't ever go to college and don't have an account and have no student loan debt and never did, but that's okay. So, you know, they'll be like, oh, uh, how much student loan debt do you have? Oh, like $25,000. Are you in behind on it? No, no, but I, I struggle really, really hard to make my payments, you know. Um, but uh, I'm current, but if there's any way you could help lower them or reduce my, anything like that, yeah, that would be really great. And they'll start talking, and you kind of play along with them. And when they get to where they're asking for actually personal information, where they could actually do something with it, you know, they'll say, what's your name? Oh, it's John, which actually isn't a lie, by the way. It's Smith, yeah. Uh, but I, I just don't, you know, it's, it's so hard to find a job that goes with this degree. That's why I'm having so much trouble. And they're trying to steer you back on it. You go, because, you know, I got my degree from the University of Transylvania on vampire technology. And some bitch named Buffy always seems to be right in front of me at the job interview. F you, right? And, you know, I know it seems like you're being a prick to be a prick. But here's the reality. These people are not supposed to be calling your cell phone. They're not. There is a thing called the National Do Not Call List. There is a way to put your number on it. My number is on it, okay? And there is a big-ass fine for people to do it, but they do it anyway because your government, who will prosecute you for very minor violations of law, will not do jack shit about this problem because they don't really care, and it's not important to them. It's not important to them. So... My view is the more we waste their time and therefore their money and make this practice not profitable, the less of it will occur. So I'm going to suggest that if you're getting calls about your car's extended warranty or your student loan debt that you don't have or some other bullshit from a robot asking if you want to speak to a rep, that you might want to speak to that rep and waste a little bit of their time. Now, there's 150,000 people listening to the Survival Podcast every day, sometimes significantly more. If even half of us, 70, 75,000 people, did this on a regular basis, it just might start to change the way these people do business. Because I don't feel that any of us need to be called by a robot to ask us if we want an extended warranty for our car or to help us with our student loan debts. There's plenty of ways we can go out and find that out for ourselves. And if the business model is valid, it'll continue And if it's not, it won't, especially if it gets a little help from a little bit of time-wasting, since obviously your time and your privacy is not important to these people. And remember, the longer you keep them on the phone, the longer you give them information that seems useful to them without giving them anything they can actually use, the better and more effective the result is when they realize they've been had, and the more likely they are to actually remove your number from their database, which they claim they will do, but never seem to do, because it's the same chick with the same ruse and the same setup over and over and over again. But I have to say, after last week and doing this about ten times, I haven't heard from them lately. It's I'm kind of missing them. I'm, I'm hoping they'll call me again soon. Who knows what I'll come up with, and I'd love to hear what little... Funny things you've come up with in today's show notes on 
messing with telemarketers. Before we move on, I'll give you a classic one from back in the day before the robots when people actually just sat in rooms and called local numbers to set things up for, like, carpet cleaning. My buddy Brian did this one time. He calls, yeah, we, we do carpet cleaning, blah, blah, yada, yada. He goes, oh, I'm so glad you called. I'm so, I'm so glad you called. I need this, like, now. I need someone to come right away. And they're like, well, yeah, we can do that. He goes, but what I need to know is, like, are you good at getting stains out? Like, you know, stains out of the carpet? And they're like, yeah. Can, can, can you get them out of, like, furniture? Yeah. He goes, okay. Um, including blood. Can you get blood stains out? The guy's like, well, uh, yeah. What about curtains? Can you get blood out of curtains? And the guy's like, oh, well, yeah, we can. And he's like, do you have a van? It can't be a truck. I need a van with, with, with tinted windows. And then he hung up real fast. And actually, that one was sold so well, the manager called him back. And his response was, I don't know. I was just trying to get my carpet clean, and your salesman didn't seem to want to help me, so bye. Click. Now, I think that was a little bit mean, but sure so funny as far as I'm concerned. Anyway, next up, I wanted to talk to you guys about a call from last, or actually uh, a question from last week. That was on making mead with the sacred herb, we would call a methlogen. Any herbed mead is a methlogen. And, uh, of course, by the sacred herb, I mean cannabis. Well, Joseph came by and commented on the blog, and this is the comment that he left in response to my thing, which was about, you know, covering up the flavor and how you might make a cannabis mead, and please be careful. And he said something I really didn't think about, but... I don't know if it's completely true depending on how you do it because I could say the same thing about hops and if we if we boil them, that changes. So I don't know if maybe there's ways to do that, but here's what he said, and overall it makes sense. He says, pot mead, the psychoactive ingredients are oil-soluble, not water-soluble. Mead won't infuse with THC or CBD, even with the emulsifying properties of honey. You would need to extract a hash oil, mix with honey, and add to the finished dry meat after ferment. What you want is a soluble similar drug. Try prickly lettuce resin. It's legal, probably growing in your yard already. Works like CBD and marijuana with a strong sedative and numbing effect. It's derived from a plant latex, so latex allergies are the biggest concern. Just look up the plant on YouTube if you're unfamiliar with it. it it's a great painkiller. Alternatively, kilp daga, a warm weather mint, has similar effects and is soluble in water. Usually taking as a pop substitute in teas, it tastes like ass. So you need a good strong mead with sweet flavor, uh, balanced with some acidity, and probably a strong flavoring agent like ginger and habanero. It's also legal anywhere in the U.S., in any quantity and avoids the latex issue. So that's again, that's called Kilp Daga, K-I-L-P-D-A-G-G-A. Neither of these are screened on drug tests and have similar effects. As with any psychotrophic, use in moderation, not while driving. If you make and consume these, be responsible and have one glass before bed when you don't have some place to go or other responsibilities and keep it away from kids, etc., Uh, so I think that's some good advice there. Uh, I've heard a lot about prickly lettuce as a pain reliever, and I, I haven't kind of dug deeper into it and played around with it. I think this is going to be my catalyst to do so. 
Uh, taking it away from making, you know, mead that will make you more messed up than you already are from alcohol. And kind of my, my thing on this is, listen, I, I have no need to prevent anyone from using any substance that they want to use if they do so as a free adult and harm no one. And hopefully not harm themselves. But it doesn't mean I can't give some advice on what is ne what is useful and not useful or needed and not needed or beneficial and not beneficial. So I personally think when you're taking a mind-altering substance, one at a time is generally enough. It, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me to be, to be drunk and high, right? It, it really doesn't. I won't lie and say it never happened on my end, but I'm saying my experience with it is it would be better if it didn't happen together. Now, some things combined are interesting. I've mentioned my experiments with uh, Three Flowers Mead and Heather, and Heather having some unique, somewhat euphoric uh, properties when fermented with honey in mead that I can't really explain, but I, I know it's there because it wasn't like you, no one's immune to psychosomatic effects. Psychosomatic does not mean it's all in your head. It means mind-body effects, okay? Psychosomatic is a perfectly good term that, once again, science has ruined, like many certain terms that, that science has ruined, like global warming, just saying. So psychosomatic, that's what we think of as the crazy woman that thinks she's sick that isn't. We can all have psychosomatic effects. So, for instance, if I thought Heather did something in mead, and I made some Heather mead or some Three Flowers mead using Heather, which is what I, I make, and I, I drank it with the expectation that I would get some sort of additional result from it, and I did, that would not be very conclusive to even me. Because I know my own limitations. I know I'm subject to some sort of psychosomatic, psychoreactive component, especially when there's an active component. So alcohol is an active component that alters the mind. We all know this. It's one of the reasons people drink it, and it's one of the one of the many reasons it can be dangerous when drank in excess quantity. Right? So when you have a reaction to something and you're expecting an additional reaction, it's much easier to fool yourself. This is this is true in drug trials. If we give someone who has a disease that is not uh, treatable by antibiotic, but at the same time they're taking another medication that maybe is an antiviral, okay, um, that can trigger psychosomatic effects that actually make the person feel better because they were already feeling better, if that makes sense. So that can actually kick in the, the immune system and actually have the immune system work at a higher level from a placebo effect that's magnified by an actual chemical biological effect. So if, if again, if I had thought I was making super-duper psychoactive mead with Heather in it, uh, I would say, you know, it's not conclusive. I should, like, get 20 of my best friends to drink it without telling them and see what they think. Um, but, man, the first time I drank two small glasses of that shit, I was looped and, like, going, what the hell? And did some research and found that there is something to uh, Heather Mead from way, way back about having, you know, back when the Vikings believed it put you in touch with gods, it did a little bit more to do that or something. But anyway, I think it's interesting that things like prickly lettuce 
and Kilp Daga Mint uh, have similar properties to something highly illegal uh, and may be medically beneficial. So that's really the biggest reason that I read uh, that comment in today's email. So that might be something you want to check into if that's your type of thing. Next up, I want to read to you a story of a confrontation with a law enforcement officer. And again, I'm not going to call the guy an oathbreaker or anything like that. I'm not going to flip my lid or anything. I'm going to stay nice and calm on this one. But I want to read the whole thing, and I kind of want to end with why this isn't okay and why I know a lot of cops are out there doing this and why they're being trained in this and why they think it's okay and why it's not. Here we go. Uh, this is from David. David says, Uh, I was recently stopped on a wild goose chase for having a taillight out. I'm in Tennessee, so I'm not compelled to inform. That's on, 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 okay. Let me tell you something before I read the rest of this. I absolutely know. I absolutely know that Tennessee is heavily involved in, in it, uh, what this is related to, but not exactly the same as. Tennessee has started looking for people making drug runs, but they don't want them when they have the drugs. What they're doing is they're profiling. Yeah, they do that. They're looking for a man and a woman in a vehicle primarily. And they're looking for them going in the direction that they're least likely to have drugs versus most likely to have drugs. And they're shaking them down until they find out they have a bunch of money on them. And then they're using asset forfeiture to take the money away under the belief that if drugs are not profitable, it'll stop the drug problem where I think they're actually road pirates and enriching themselves. If you have nothing to convict someone on, you should not be able to take their property. Separate issue, but I want you to frame that in context, considering this has happened in Tennessee, and what I just told you is not, it's not conspiracy theory. It's not made up. I've spoken to three different members of this audience who have done ride-alongs with police and have seen this going on. One who's very well known to the audience I will not name unless he wants to name himself. Okay? All right. So, when the officer approached, I already had a license had license ready and wallet laying on the dash. Insurance card in it, which I just printed out earlier for some unknown reason. I was asked for ID and informed about the light being out. Then I got accused of smelling like alcohol. Nothing to drink since the day before, so that was BS. Anything illegal in the truck? No. Where's the alcohol? I smell it. There's not any. Any drugs in the truck? No. Marijuana? No. Cocaine? No. Meth? No. Heroin, no. So, to turn around, starts to turn around and turns back. Any weapons? Yes, there is. What and where? My knife hanging around my neck and a 9mm holster to my right hip. Loaded, I'm assuming. Of course. Haven't been drinking because I smell it. No, sir. Walks back to his truck. Comes back and asks again about drinking. No, sir. No alcohol tonight. We're going to do some field sobriety tests. Can I have you disarm and leave it in the truck? Sure thing. I slowly and very visibly removed uh, removed my my gun, dropped my mag, unchambered round, laid it on the console, got out of the truck, removed my neck knife, and laid it on the seat. He patted me down. What's in the holster? Another mag. What's in the pocket? I'm not sure. I felt starting from the knee up, so he wasn't going for anything Uh, patting to the pocket, uh, when I felt it, I knew, a lighter and another knife. Okay, then he did his sobriety test. I obviously passed, no reason not to. Can I search the truck? No, sir. I smell alcohol, that gives me probable cause. You don't smell alcohol. Keeps looking in the truck with a flashlight, trying to see anything. Oh, yeah, one of my big pit bulls is sitting in the back seat, which he had seen and asked about, 
uh, at the beginning, but I'm sure it was intimidating. With no luck of being able to find anything, he starts asking what's going to happen when he runs my license. I'm going to stop you right there. If this cop was doing his job the right way, he would have ran the man's license at that point, before this point. He would have certainly run the guy's plates. You don't dick around with somebody this long before you even run their ID when they provided ID to you. You just don't. Unless you're effing with them on purpose. Uh, nothing wrong with my license, sir. Another cop nearby t state uh, town uh, stops by, came for a minute, and then left. He asked if I'd seen anybody walking. Yes, I actually did. Where? Just this side of the state park an hour away. Asked again about my license and alcohol. No alcohol. I'm completely legal, sir. He goes to his truck. Starts heading back. I knew no ticket or anything. Just hassling and try to find something wrong. Like he said, Jack, no clipboard in his hand for me to sign or anything. Okay. Now, people would look at this and say, yeah, this is a little bit wrong. But in the end, nothing happened. And look, the citizen did everything the nice officer said, and everything worked out okay. Okay. Listen. This is why this is not okay. First of all, you have an armed citizen. You have a cop being an asshole for no reason other than to try to intimidate someone into breaking down and making a mistake or admitting that they're doing something wrong. This cop never smelled any alcohol. He never believed he smelled any alcohol. He knew he was lying when he said it. And I'm going back to what I've said before and I've been challenged on. And you're lying when you say this, cops. Police officers in their training are trained to lie. When you say you're not trained to lie, you're using your training to lie about your training. You are trained to lie. This guy was lying, and he knew he was lying. There's a dog in the car. He's pulling all this bullshit over a traffic light to try to maybe get somebody that's got some drug money on him that he can seize with asset forfeiture. The guy has a gun. There's really no reason to be screwing with this guy. There's all types of things that could go wrong in this stop. Because you're messing with somebody that you never needed to be messing with. This is how this stop should have went. Sir, I pulled you over because your tail light's out. Oh, I see that you've already got ready for me your license and registration. I'm going to check that. A little look around the car. That's okay for them to look in your car. There's nothing unconstitutional about that. Sorry. Sorry, guys. There's not. Right? There's nothing there except a dog. There is no alcohol smell. There is nothing. Okay, I'm, uh, when I run this, am I going to find any kind of warrants or anything like that? No? All right, let me go, let me go take a look at this, and hopefully we don't have any, any further problems tonight. You're going to run the guy's shit, and you're going to find out he has no nothing. There's no warrants, there's no nothing. Then you're going to make a decision. You're either going to be an asshole and write him a check, uh, ticket over a taillight, or give him a verbal or written warning over a taillight, tell him to proceed on his way. If he's up to something... I don't actually have a problem with the fact, depending on what it is, honestly, but I, I know cops have a job to do, okay? With, okay, that was an opportunity for contact. There's a taillight out. That is a, by the book, opportunity for contact. Evaluating that contact to determine if there's something going on. But doing it like, get out of the car, you don't have any meth, you don't have any marijuana, you don't have any cocaine, you don't have any heroin, I smell alcohol, right? And the guy's like, I smell alcohol, that gives me probable cause. No, you don't. And I'm going to tell you right now. Do you know how I know he didn't smell alcohol? I'll tell you how I know. Because he would have searched the vehicle. He would have searched the vehicle. He was trying to break the guy 
and make him say something that would give him probable cause or break down and say, go ahead, check it. That's what he was doing. And I'm going to tell you, there's a lot of versions of this. Let me tell you one I've experienced more than once. Uh, the last time this happened was quite a few years ago. I was leaving. Uh, a we were on vacation in Florida, and it was the year we screwed up. We flew into Fort Lauderdale instead of Fort Myers, which is like 100 miles apart. And so we had to leave at like 3.30 in the morning. So we're in you know, Broward County, Florida, heading toward the Everglades at about 3.34 o'clock in the morning, which is obviously a little bit odd. And I'm driving along doing a speed limit. There's almost nobody else on the road. Car pulls out into the passing lane. It's going to pass me. Pulls up into my blind spot and sits there. For a good two or three miles. Sits there in my blind spot. I can tell he's there, but I can't really see him in either of the, uh, the mirrors. He knows exactly what he's doing. My wife's like... Why don't you just blow this guy off or hit the brakes and let him go by? So I slow down a little bit. He slows down a little bit, stays in my blind spot. It's because it's a cop. She can't even see it's a cop because it's a slick top. It's a marked car, but it's slick topped. He's got his brights on, and it's so dark, and he's sitting where she can't even see it's a cop. And she's like, how do you know it's a cop? I'm like, I know it's a cop. So I set the freaking cruise control three miles under the speed limit and just sit there and drive. And it was like another two miles of this bullshit that they pull up and they look in the car and they see me, my wife, and my, my, my son, who's like, you know, a young teen at the time, crashed out sleeping in the back. They look in the car really hard and then they drive on about their way. Cause they realize this is not what we thought it was. Why is that? Okay. I know there's a lot of cops going, well, that's, 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 that's all. No, it's not. It's, it's an unsafe thing to get in the passing lane, pull into somebody's blind spot, match their course and speed in the dark with your high beams on, and stay there. Here's a lot of shit that could have went wrong with this. How about this? I'm on the road in an area that, yes, there is some drug trafficking. It's 3.30 in the morning. What if I don't know cops pull this bullshit? By the way, I'm freaking armed. And I've got my son and my wife to protect while you're pulling your bullshit. I'm telling you. And then here's what causes the bigger problem. You guys are doing this shit, and you're doing it pretty much equally. You don't care if a person's black, white, green, Mexican, Hispanic, from Pluto. But you got a demographic in the black community that really don't trust you because some of you have given them reasons not to. Because some of you do police them differently and don't say that you don't. So whether you're one of those cops or just one of the cops doing this shit that shouldn't be in the first place, and you start having encounters with African Americans this way, and it goes wrong, you see what I'm saying? And there's a lot of things that can go wrong when you make these contacts this way. And there's hundreds of ways that law enforcement is initiating these contacts under these types of circumstances, shadowing people, trying to, I've had that happen before. I had a state cop when I was a young guy. Didn't know my rights yet. Young guy. Was uh, early 20s, before I met Dorothy. Driving my truck. I'm on the highway in, in Texas. I don't even understand at this point in my head. I'm right out of the army. I don't get that there's a high amount of drug trafficking and have no idea that's what he's, he's looking for. I've got like this beat-ass old Chevy pickup. He does the same thing, except it's daylight so I can see him. He sits there with his state cop car, driving illegally in the passing lane. Not passing, driving slower than traffic, maintaining your speed, so that other cars behind you cannot pass. 
You should be pulled over for driving illegally, if a cop, if you're doing that. Having your special little badge and your special little uniform doesn't make this okay. You're violating traffic law. I know what, but I do know what he's doing. Even then, I do know what he's doing. He's trying to make me nervous, so I'll make a mistake. So I'll go over the line or something like that. So finally, he put, he, he backs off, gets behind me, and pulls me over. Do you know why I pulled you over? I have no idea. Well, you know, I was, I was back there following you for a while, and your, your wheel went over the white line on, on the shoulder. Well, I, I don't believe that it did, but you know, when you sit in somebody's blind spot, officer, it kind of makes them nervous. Well, why would you be nervous? Before you were a police officer, if a cop sat in your blind spot for several miles going down the highway for no reason at all, might it have made you nervous? And he's a young cop. This guy was, like, strack. His uniform had seams in it. I think you would have cut yourself on the, the start seams on his pants. And uh, But he was he was somewhat reasonable. And uh looked like he'd been out of the academy like five days or something, man. Like five days on the job. He's like, well, I, I, I do see what you mean. Okay. What are you doing? I'm going home. Like, see, today I'd be like, you know, I don't really have any... Any need to answer these questions? Here's my driver's license. Uh, here's my ID. Can I search your vehicle? No, sir. No. Where are you going? I don't really think that's your business. Where are you coming from? I don't really think that's your business. The way he was being. Most cops, I would, you know, I'd give him a little bit of it. I'd be, I'd be reasonable. This guy would probably today say, no, it's not your business. But anyway, I'm like, you know, I'm going home. Where do you live? I live in Louisville, Texas. Where are you coming from? Houston, Texas. What are you doing down there? I work down there. What do you do? I'm a contractor for MCI. Oh. Like, what kind of work? It's a phone company. I do work on phone systems. Oh. You work down there, but you live in Dallas? Yes, I'm a contractor. We travel all over the place. Oh. Tires look a little bad on your truck. I I think they're serviceable. Yeah, but you probably should get some new ones soon. Dallas is having He's trying to bullshit me into things, right? I'm like, you know, I don't make a lot of money. I have to wait, you know, until I can save up enough to put new tires on my truck, but I don't think that really is any kind of violation. Or no, no, you're right. You got anything in the truck I need to know about? Like what? Like any weapons? Rifle and a shotgun behind the seat unloaded, which I believe is completely my legal right in the state of Texas. Didn't have Texas didn't have concealed carry yet at the time, by the way. No, that's that, that's fine. Yeah, okay. Just need to know about them. Think it back. No, you don't. But yeah, whatever. Anything else in the vehicle I need to know about? No. My clothes, my tools. That's it. You do drugs? No. Okay. Can I search your vehicle? And a little bit of asshole came out in young Jack Spirico. Thinking, I know he's going to do. He's going to climb under this truck. Now, I had just been home to Pennsylvania. And I had gone to a place that we call the Black Desert. The Black Desert is a place where coal slush is dumped. Slush is a byproduct. So cops think before you act sometimes, I'm just going to say. So, slush is a byproduct. It is the dirtiest shit. It makes the dirt you get on your body from tire, like like dealing with used tires where you get your pants are black, it makes that look like a day at Disney, okay? I had taken this old Chevy to the Black Desert, and I went out four-wheeling, I guess you'd call it, in the Black Desert. There were chunks, even though it had been, you know, a month, there was black coal dust shit throughout the undercarriage of this truck. You know what I said? 
Go ahead. Remember, my rifle and shotgun are behind the seat. There's a couple boxes of ammunition. They're not loaded. Just so you're not alarmed when you see him, go ahead. And he went through my whole vehicle. He climbed underneath it. He beat on the spare tire. He was looking for drugs. By this time, I had figured it out. When he came out from under that truck, he looked like like an English kid that had been cleaning chimneys in like a Charles Dickens like thing on like an old movie. <laughs> And when he got through with everything, and I got back in my truck to leave, I pulled the cover off of the uh, the steering wheel. said, if you're ever looking in a truck like this for somebody to place to hide something, there would be your place. And in those old Chevys, the, the cover for the horn came right off, and there was an area in there about, I mean, you could probably fit a pack of cigarettes in there. Put it back on and drove away. But that was another example of a shakedown, relatively modest. But this is not okay. You guys that are cops that think this shit's okay, this is not okay. This is why people don't trust you. You know, you go through enough experiences like this with law enforcement, and you're not too hip on helping them anymore. And here's, this is the lesson. <clears throat> you guys want respect, but you also need something. You need our help. If you want to be effective in law enforcement, you need the support and help of the community. You need people willing to tell you, yeah, I saw the guy, he went that way. All this shit you're doing, and you're doing it more today than you were doing it 25 years ago, which is when the story I just told you happened about, is making that less likely to happen. Shaking people down, seizing property when you have nothing to charge them with. Saying you smell alcohol when you don't smell alcohol at all. Lying to people. All of intimidating people. All of this shit. Flat out lying. I have probable cause. Well, if you had probable cause, you'd be searching the car now, wouldn't you? But you don't, but you're lying that you do so that you can trick me into giving you permission to do so. This type of shit. Keep it up. And the problem that you're bitching about, not that I'm bitching about, the problem I hear from law enforcement as a community that you're complaining about will get worse. Don't be Nero. Don't think you can keep pushing this and not make the problem worse and not eventually ruin it for yourself. Neuter yourself. That's where you're headed. I promise not to snap, and I didn't, but I'm telling you, that's where you're headed. Um, next one is totally different, which is good. Lots of uh, variety in a Monday show I like to try to give you. Uh, this comes from Sean. Sean says, What's your opinion about the newer non-stick coatings I'm seeing on fry pans, saute pans, etc.? I was a grill operator for Waffle House back in the 90s. We always used wherever aluminum frying pans, 8-inch for eggs, 10-inch for everything else. In a fast-paced cooking environment like that, it was relatively easy to maintain a seasoned non-stick cooking surface uh, at a price point of $15 to $35. Bucks. The performance made it an easy choice for me when I left the restaurant. Fast forward 20 years... And although I love being married, my pants have just returned from the dishwasher hell for what I believe is the last time. I don't think I can rehab them anymore, and I've accepted by now that dear heart, while perfect in all other ways, is not going to stop tossing my knives and pans in the dishwasher every time I'm not looking. I had to hide away the good knives 18 years ago and substitute $10 and $20 knives from my local restaurant supply, which I just replaced every couple of years. I went to the restaurant supply for replacements, only discovered that all they have, they, they all have offerings of non-stick coating applied. Have you ever experienced these? I can still get clad pans through Amazon, but they will be subject to abuse that killed my older pans and knives. Thanks, Sean, from 90 miles south of Jack. Um, Sean, the problem is you didn't tell me 
what these new coatings are. Because saying they're new coatings is like, I mean, there's so many new coatings. There's anodized aluminum. Uh, there's stoneware. There's new versions of, um, of basically Teflon. There's new ceramics and things like that. And, and I'm going to tell you that I like the stoneware uh, that I've recommended okay. But what has happened to two of my stoneware pans is I had them on the stove, I cooked something, I took it away to eat it and forgot I still had the burner on low, and I screwed them up pretty good. You can overheat them, and they turn kind of this black charred thing. And I think they would last really well if you didn't do that. Personally, and this unfortunately, this will not solve your problem. I have gone almost 100% to cast iron and carbon steel. And I, 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 I kind of feel this way about this. You, you got to stop your wife from putting pans that don't belong in the dishwasher in the dishwasher. I don't care if you have to disconnect, put a switch where you can shut the dishwasher off, and when she tries to turn it on, it won't work. I mean, something. Like, this is not acceptable. In fact, I kind of feel like I want to, to send a message to, to Lodge, be able to make cast iron uh, cookware. <clears throat> they have a video on care of your, your cast iron cookware, and it, it's showing you all the right ways to care for your cast iron. But they say, you know, wash it and use soap if you want. Like Lodge, I love you. But if you're going to keep telling people that they can use soap on my, on my cast iron, we can't be friends anymore. All right, this, this, you just don't do this. Now, I don't know how to actually solve that problem for you. Um, I'd say your best bet is inexpensive nonstick cookware and just throw it away when you need new cookware if you can't fix this problem. I, I'm, I'm dead serious. I mean, that's like, I don't care what it is, you're going to ruin it if you keep throwing it in the dishwasher. And you're going to be limited as to what you can do with coated cookware. None of it is really suited to go in the oven at 450 degrees. None of it is really suited to get to very high temperatures and do searing except stonewares and ceramics. And those are okay. My personal opinion, the best frying pan for day-to-day -day use is a, a, a carbon steel frying pan from Lodge. And if every time you use that thing, You basically deglaze it with, even if you just, you know, you're not really deglazing it for your cooking, but just hit it with some water and all that sticky goo comes off and you hit it with a ringer, chainmail ringer, and add a little coating of oil, it will get better and better and better. And if you ever screw up and leave the temperature on too long, it either won't screw it up or if it does, it's pretty easy to fix. And the same with cast iron. And I don't know what the obsession with some people is with soap and dishwashers, and cookware. Okay, you got to think about this. It's not a plate or a bowl. You're not going to take it out of the cabinet, put food in it, and eat it out of there. Anytime you're going to use a pan or a pot or something like that to cook with, it's going to be heated way hot enough that you don't have to worry about, well, there might be something in there that's going to make you sick. Because sick stuff did not sur survive for any length of time above 160 degrees. By the way, did you know that? Like the total amount of time you have to boil water to make it safe to drink, if it's not safe to drink right now, is zero minutes. Because water and just about any pathogen that's dangerous that you can be, you know, gotten rid of through heat begins to uh, pasteurize at 160 degrees. 
160 degrees. And by the time your water heats from 160 degrees to 212 degrees, it's already safe to drink. Really, that's, that's true. You can check it out. Now, I guess somebody would say, well, botulism. Well, you're not going to have botulism growing um, on a little sticky spot that you missed on a pan. Even if you did, you're going to get over the 240 degrees necessary to kill that in any kind of cooking with surface temperatures. Okay, Even if the food doesn't reach those higher temperatures, the surface temperature will. But it's, it's, it's a moot and irrelevant point anyway. So I guess my thing is for people that are obsessed with cleaning cookware in ways it should not be clean, like with soapy water, uh, with using uh, dishwasher and what have you, um, stop it, please, so that people like, like Sean here can have cookware that's actually good. Because I have yet to find anything better than carbon steel and cast iron. And if you go to restaurants, that's what they use, or they use well-seasoned aluminum. That's it. That, that, that's it. You do not see this other shit. Now, what is the place for things like a Teflon coating? If you make a bunch of eggs, it's, I have one T-Fowl silicon skillet, big one, and there's certain things, if I just don't want to deal with any sticking at all, pull the damn thing out and use it, and as long as you're using sautéing, frying temperatures, you don't have any worries. Um, but if you, Sean, if you want to follow back up with what exactly these new surfaces are, I'll, I'll see what I can do to help, but I'm, I'm going to fall back on, you say she won't stop doing it, but instead of telling her she's wrong and don't do it, have you ever really sat down and said, this is important to me, can I please explain to you why you need to not do this to me? And all, I think the other thing is, I will wash them, and I will not leave them sit in the sink for days if you'll let me. That might work. Um, I've actually taught Dorothy to maintain cast iron and carbon steel skillets. And sometimes I clean them, and sometimes she cleans them, and she does a great job. By the way, the best scouring powder for your cast iron or carbon steel, if you have some stuck-on stuff that doesn't want to come off, coarse salt. Get yourself a ringer, which is a little piece of chain mail, called the ringer, and some coarse salt, and just wet your pan a little bit, and spray some, sprinkle some coarse salt on there and use it like it's Comet. It does a beautiful job getting that last little bit off if you're having a spot that you can't get it off. It's that simple. Cast iron, carbon steel. There's a reason that there's pans out there that are over 100 years old that people are still using, and none of them are covered with ceramic or rock or silicon or Teflon or any of that shit. They're just well-seasoned, and that's the best answer, even if it doesn't work for you, Sean. I'm sorry. Okay, this next one's really long, but I'm going to go ahead and read it so that when I shorten the hell out of my answer, it's not going to be like, well, you didn't hear what he had to say, at least back from this guy. John, John says, I have a question about libertarian society and ownership. Hypothetically, if you discovered a new piece of land that's never been occupied virtue of discovering it, would you automatically own the whole place? How do you establish initial infrastructure? What if you don't get 100% voluntary participation? Details, I found, okay, let me just stop right there. I almost don't need to read this. If it is my land, there are certain attributes that have to be made for it to become recognized legally as my land. One is my ability to maintain and defend it. And if I do that, everything else you're going to say doesn't matter because anybody that doesn't want to participate, it's my land, stay off it. All right? All right? That's... Okay. Oh, anyway. Details. I found your podcast through Permaculture Avenue and have loved listening to you so much I joined the MSB. 
I have held consistently liberal political viewpoints throughout my entire life, but I've never really explored the very basic concepts of ownership that you've been discussing lately. <clears throat> While I may disagree with your viewpoint sometime, I want to take this moment to commend you for being level-headed, intelligent, and civil in your discourse. By the way, that's usually where these emails go to shit. Not this time, but it usually is. This is where you're told you're an asshole or something, but no, he didn't do that, right? Uh, it has got this liberal to at least listen and consider what you have to say. I hope you will take this opportunity to engage me and some of your other liberal listeners a little longer. Uh, by the way, John, I'm extremely liberal. I'm extremely liberal. As long as the property that you're discussing is your own, rightfully acquired properly, or the decisions that you're making affect you and yourself and don't violate other rights. I'm more liberal than the average liberal in America, just so you know. The average liberal in America thinks a lot of things should be illegal that I don't think should be illegal. I'm incredibly liberal for what you do with your own money and your own property. That's not a conservative position at all, by the way. That's a very liberal position. Anyway, uh, to the point of the question, it has been my view that your libertarian ideas, by the way, I am an anarchist, and all anarchists are libertarians, but not all libertarians are anarchists, just to make that distinction, uh, all well and good as long as you don't consider the embedded benefits of our current paradigm. That is illogical. That's saying because something we have works, it can't work any other way. Well, I'm going to keep going. I'm going to try to keep my analogy simple. So for sake of argument, I'll only mention roads and defense. My roads, my schools, my military. All right. Uh, because at the most basic level, those are two services that uh, for the common good that you almost cannot avoid. Well, we only need to defend... If there's someone attacking us. And if we have two places that people want to get from one to the other, I'm telling you, the market will provide roads. It's happened before. It could happen again. In this hypothetical new land discovery situation, let's fast forward a few years. You've parceled off 100 lots from your new land and sold them, but you have no roads or common defense. Well, see, I wouldn't be able to sell them without providing access. So there would be some sort of road. And funny thing, even without roads, lots of vehicles can get places. It's funny, unless there's like a giant mountain with boulders, you can drive over shit without there actually being what you call a road. In fact, if you do it long enough, something very similar to a road starts to appear. Deer do it, so cars and trucks can do it too. Anyway, just, all right. Um, you, de you determine it will cost $100,000 to build a road. Oh, good luck with that, by the way. It's going to be way more than that because the government's going to make it more than that. All right? Uh, and $100,000 to staff a defense force <clears throat> if everybody participates. You survey all the landowners, and 25% are happy uh, on their little off-grid homesteads and have no desire to voluntarily, or maybe they just can't afford to build their section of the road or pay a fee for defense, so the other 75% must redesign a longer, windier road to avoid their properties, and the defense fee per person is jacked higher. No. It's not my land anymore. It's theirs. They can do whatever they want to it. Assuming I started with this land and parceled it off, I would have provided access in order to sell the parcels. That's how private property and private developments work. You can't find a private development with this problem. 
just just for the record, instead of like a magic land, fairyland, that I found and became owner of, if I go buy a piece of land, this happens all the time, people buy land, they develop it and do exactly what you said. They put their own roads in as part of when they parcel it off and sell it. That's how that works, okay? And if you don't want a road, then you can buy a piece without a road, but you just, anyway, let me go. What happens if uncooperative neighbors decide to extort money and sell their land for the straight road? Is that just a free market force to deal with? Or after a winding road is built, those landowners decide to build a bypass to straighten out the road and charge a higher toll. If you own the land and you can put in a better uh, way to get through it and you want to charge for use of your land, that's completely acceptable to me and you're now making my point. You're now making my point. If there's a need for people to get from one point to another, there will be a solution delivered by the market, yes. Okay. What if someone decides they don't like the noise anymore and rip out their section of the road? Okay, <clears throat> when you put a road in, even a private road, you do it with a contract. Remember, anarchy is without rulers, not without rules. And there's arbitrators and things like that. And you don't, and who's going to rip out the road? They need the road to get to their house. See, this is you just making shit up, right? Um, <laughs> Uh, or the winding road, okay, how do you deal with these people in libertarian land? Libertarian land is not a place. You've made that up, not me. Um, so uh, three out of four neighbors are paying the defense fee, but the fourth guy has an implicit guarantee of security because the neighbors won't let marauding forces advance their position close to their boundaries. So he benefits for free. Why are you worried about that? Don't you think those four people can solve that problem for themselves? Do you need the magic hand of the state to fix that problem? Do we have to steal from all four of them to make all four of them happy? Or can we let them work this out for themselves? How much defense force does this little development really need? The third neighbor gets fed up with this and quits paying his part. And before long, there's no defense or it's unfunded and ineffective. And then people that take that approach will either have it work anyway or have it fail. And people will develop things that are effective without stealing from people. We don't have to steal from people to solve this problem. Very simplistically, it seems that if this defense is to exist, it must be compulsory. So what you're saying is because you can't understand how it would work, we have to force everybody to be part of it. In other words, since you can't understand how it could be done, it's okay to steal. That's what you've just said. In spite of the fact that there's developments like this all over the country, off-grid, on-grid, but way out in the middle of nowhere, with no real police force, and people figure it out. Because when you put the vacuum of the, the you know almost no enforcement by the state of anything, because there's places where it's just not worth it, people figure out how to deal with it. There's no need for a defense force. You're talking about as police. Until somebody steals something, we don't need the police. Until somebody infringes on somebody else's rights, we don't need the police. If you want private security, you pay for it. If you don't want it, you don't. What's wrong with that? Well, what about people that can't afford it? They don't get to live in libertarian land that you made up, which is a fictitious place that never existed. 
So you could make your case built on a straw man. I'm sorry. I'm not being a dick. I'm just being honest with you. Um, are the 75% happy to cover the cost for the other people because they are nice people and want to live in the positive community? I don't know. Why don't you let them make that decision for themselves? What if the 25% uh, are just people that have low-income jobs and will never be able to afford the luxury of a road or defense, and they just have to stick it out? They would have never come to my development. They would have went somewhere else. There might be less people that can't afford it if, if, if everybody wasn't being stolen from. I don't know. But you said I made a development and parceled it out. I didn't just willy-nilly give it to people. Since it was a private property and a private transaction, I had discretion over who I sold to, and I sold to them with an appended agreement on what it meant to live there. Some bitch. Like, people can work their own shit out. Let's say the 75% of the people in my hypothetical say, screw it and buy another plot of land where they all agree with each other, but then someone has to move and sells out to a person who doesn't agree with their worldview and refuses to pay into the system voluntarily. It would be handled the same way HOAs handle it today, except without the state being involved. If you're going to live here, this is how we live here. If you don't like it here, go live somewhere else. Really, really simple. Including, you can go live somewhere where you don't affect anybody else, and then you can do whatever the hell that you want. Does it not just start a downward spiral to the initial situation that led them to leave the first land? No. No. The downward spiral is more and more government. Please understand, John. I know you're a nice guy. I know you're sincere in your question. But when we were tired of the King of England and threw his ass out of here, the average person was taxed at 3%. About 3% of what they made ended up in taxes. And that was too much. The downward spiral is the bloated growth of government. Somehow, somehow, with people paying less than 3% of their income in taxes... We became the greatest country in the world. Somehow we made it till 1913 with no income tax. Somehow. But now we can't see any other way than to steal from people. Okay? I know this is, um, I know this is long and probably not able to make it on the air. Uh, you were wrong. This is amazing. You can be wrong, John. I would really love to hear your take on this. But if you don't have time or patience to respond, maybe you can point me to resources to address this type of scenario. Maybe there is someone on the expert council you could refer this to, Vin Armani on the council. Please feel free to boil this down a manageable segment if needed. Thanks for all you do. John, okay, listen. The reality is your entire argument lies on the concept of since I can't figure out how this could be done, We have to assume that it can't be done. John, again, I want you to think about this. Let's take all of that away for a minute. Because I know I picked on you a bit, but I was good enough to read this whole thing on the air and let you be heard, even though you didn't think I would. So now be good enough to listen to my response to this in, in, a, in a different way. Let's take away the fact that you can't figure it out and that I don't have all the answers, that we both know that right now. And let's come at this from a moral standpoint alone. Is it okay to take the property of another individual that they acquired through lawful, and we don't need a state to have lawful be a word, through lawful, noble means, away from them without their consent, 
period. And I think if you approach that from a purely moral standpoint, you would say, no, it's not. No, it's not. Okay. Now let's, let's take a logical look at libertarianism, voluntarism, agorism, anarchism. Okay. Is it reasonable to believe that any nation in this world, let alone the United States of America, could transition fully to even a libertarian minarchist state in 10 years. And I think if we're both honest about that, we would say no. No, it can't. It, it, it's not possible. And for it to transition smoothly to a voluntarist society where there's zero anarchy, zero archism, right? And, and everything is agorist and everything is private. And no one steals from anybody, and everything's through voluntary association. No way, not a chance at hell. Not going to happen. So, what we're talking about is an ideal to move toward rather than a place to get to. So, if we look at this morally and say that stealing is wrong, and when you take something that somebody doesn't want to give you, by force, that's stealing, then we have to admit that tax is theft. And some smartass right now is going, no, Jack, you're wrong. Tax is extortion. Extortion is a form of theft. I've already thought about that. Don't bring it up like some dweeb at a sci-fi convention, okay? So tax is theft. It is theft. There's no argument around that. Then aren't we not morally called? Be we the atheist that just believes in general morality the theist that believes in God and thou shalt not steal, the deist such as myself that believes in a higher power and logic and reason leading basic morality, you don't take that's not yours, all of those groups that can't agree on hardly anything, can't we all agree that if, if, if tax is theft, then we should do everything we can to not steal under the current situation. We didn't make it this way. We did not make it this way. We were born into this society that does have... Here's the thing. You were right. There are benefits of the society that we live in. But I will tell you this. There's benefits to living in Iran. It can get worse. Ask a North Korean. Okay? Maybe. Sort of. Kind of. I don't know. Some people would actually say North Korea sucks but it sucks less than Iran, and some people would say Iran sucks, but less than North Korea. It's subjective. Both of them are pretty horrible places to live. But yet, it can get worse than both of those. There are benefits. There are roads in Iran. There are schools in Iran. There is health care in Iran. There's also mandated religion, and you can get the shit beat out of you for dressing wrong if you're a woman, and you can get killed for being gay, but there's benefits. It works. Is that how we would live then? Do you think we should start living like they do in Iran or North Korea? Well, no, that's preposterous. Okay, so don't you think it might be possible to move far enough in the direction of voluntarism that one would look back at the United States as it is today and say, what a horrible thing for people to do to each other. What a horrible way for the state to behave. You see what I'm saying? The problem with people that want to object to libertarianism and voluntarism 
is they want to say it won't work when they don't even know what work means. What we have works. Does it work as good as it could? What's wrong with enabling the market to prove that it can work? And I'll tell you that the real issue here, most statists, I'm not saying you, John, but most statists, their real fear is not that it won't work. It's that it will. They're terrified that the market actually can do a better job than the state. Even the people that call themselves conservatives and right wing, that, that, that say that, there's a lot of things they don't want to actually see the market do a better job with. Most conservatives are highly opposed to legalizing things like cannabis. But it worked just fine in the places they did it. They don't have huge problems. I'm not saying there's no problems. And see, that's the argument. And the right is as guilty as the left. The, the, the case that we make as libertarians, anarchists, voluntarists, is not there'll be no problems, but the problems can be dealt with. That's all. There's no such thing is a freaking utopia where there are no problems and every problem's been solved. All methods of social organization work. Theocracy works. Totalitarianism works. Fascism works. The dangerous thing about fascism is it actually works pretty good. It's still horrible, but it works really. It looks better than socialism. Fascism is socialism, I know. But fascism as a form of socialism works better than Marxist socialism. It is much more financially sustainable. It is much easier to create neighborhoods that look like you expect them to look with happy people with jobs in a fascist socialism than it is with a Marxist socialism. So it can last longer and do more damage long term because it works. The concept that it works is irrelevant to the moral question. Do you have a right to retain that which you rightfully acquire unless you choose to give it up? Is it okay for someone to put a gun in your face and say, I only want 20% of your money, but I'm going to do things for you with it? Is that okay? If it's not okay for me to do it to you, then giving me a badge or electing me to office doesn't change that. It's not okay. But it's, and this is where I'm not a purist asshole like a Larkin Rose. That's not the world we live in. We do have certain concessions we have to make as we make our case that our way is better and try to prove it. And most of us, all we would like is, you know this thing you're talking about here that you don't think we can handle? Let us do it. If I put people together as investors and I buy, rightfully buy, a thousand acres somewhere, and I say, it, within the boundaries of this thousand acres, we don't want any benefits that come with paying taxes. Therefore, we do not want to pay any taxes. When we interact outside of this thousand acres, we'll pay taxes. We don't want any of your regulations. We don't want any of your laws. What goes on in our little place that we bought and paid for that's ours is like its own little micro-sovereign nation. Leave us alone, and if we fail, let us fail. And the libertarian, the voluntarist, the anarchist would make that deal tomorrow. Make that deal tomorrow. And I know you're going to say, well, what if it's David Koresh? David Koresh didn't bother anybody until the government came in and screwed everything up. 
he had a bunch of batshit crazy people that thought he was the second coming of Jesus, that was their right. What if somebody's running a child sex ring? You know what? When we have a problem with somebody running a child sex ring, not only will we figure out how to handle it, I'll be at the front of the line to start putting people in holes in the ground. Your, your argument when you say something like that is the same argument that when we were talking about legalizing gay marriage, you'd have a guy call and talk radio and go, Adam and St God made Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. And if we let people do this, there's going to be a guy marrying his dog next. It's the same argument. It's going to the extreme absurdity because you can't intellectually argue the issue at hand. The issue at hand is stealing wrong. Yes, then don't we have a compelling motivation to remove as much theft as possible from the system? And you say you're a liberal, and that probably actually means in our society today a progressive, and everything the left wants to do is increasing theft. It all increases theft. It all makes bigger government, which needs support, and therefore more compulsory participation, which is just another word for stealing. And I'll tell you something else. Most of what the right wants to do does the same thing. They've just deluded themselves because the right is bigger in their belief that the neo-fascism in the United States is actually republicanism. And it's not. It's not. We are a neo-fascist state today. Neo means new, by the way. New fascism. Industry controls government instead of government controlling industry. Otherwise, it's classic fascism all over again. I know you think fascism is Jews in concentration camps. There's been a whole shitload of fascist nations where there were no concentration camps, no execution squads. Communists killed more people than fascists in the last hundred years. Mussolini was a fascist. He didn't have concentration camps. He didn't put people, Jews on trains. Neither did Franco in Spain. We fail to see the inherent evil in our own system because we are compelled otherwise by a belief that we are good and benevolent in all things that we do. We are not. We are not. All of us are guilty to a level, including me. I participate in the system that works, that is paid for by theft. I'm aware of that. Many purist anarchists say they don't, but they do. And we have to deal with the solution, the situation that we have. But you can't tell me that we can't take hundreds of ways that we're solving problems through stealing and change the solution so that we don't have to steal to solve those problems. And you, you mentioned defense and roads. Again, I'm going to tell you, there ain't a libertarian out there, whether they are a minarchist libertarian or a pure libertarian that's actually an anarchist, that wouldn't make the deal If over the next 20 years we can put our country on a track to the only thing that government does is roads and defense, I'll take the deal. They may want to go further, but hell's bells would we take that deal. But again, why can't you leave people alone to experiment, to determine if they can come up with something better? Why is the, what's, I can't think of the guy's name, the guy that builds the earth ships. Why did he lose his, his architectural license? And why is he shut down? And why can't he just go build communities that are off-grid? They ask nothing for no one. Because, and it's not just the state. It's the neo-fascist state. Because the people that sell electricity and shit like that, they aren't real keen on this now, are they? You don't have to create 
a false Disneyland libertarian utopia to experiment with giving the market the opportunity to provide solutions. And don't worry about the person that can't pay. If you make a large enough experiment, they will find a way to pay. They will find a place that they fit in, and they might be motivated to work harder and to develop more and to become of value so that they can find a way that they can move up in society rather than creating a situation where it's actually comfortable to be unproductive, which is what we've done. The only way you can create a society where people can become, be comfortable being unproductive is through massive theft of wealth from those who've rightfully earned it. That's the only way. And I'll challenge you with this, John. I've given you a lot of time on this. Tell me how you can otherwise. Tell me how you can create a society where you can be comfortable and unproductive, not just without theft, but without massive theft. That's actually a much more fair question than what to do with libertarian Disneyland. So I pass it back to you and look forward to your response. Uh, next one I'll be really brief with because uh, I don't have a lot of facts because I just haven't gone there. Uh, but Scott sends me an email. Bottom line up front, how do you handle sources of information when some aspects are clearly nutty but others seem valid details? <clears throat> I started listening to Vin Armani based on you mentioning him and have listened to every one of his shows. I generally like most of his shows and get a good bit out of his approach and analysis. Every once in a while, though, he seems to go off the deep end. And when he does, he makes me sort of question his reliability and everything else he's doing. I do my own research and try to draw my own conclusions, but when he does something like he did this week, where he claims the Las Vegas shooting was a military drone weapons test, <clears throat> I start to wonder if he's even worth listening to. I don't really want to throw out the baby with the bathwater, but it's hard to take the rest of what he's saying seriously after a segment he did this week, beginning of the show. How do you deal with that in general, and are you getting your information from others? Do you just skip over things that seem completely crazy? Do you give them any time or do your own research on them? Seems like a waste of time in this case. I'm curious as to what your thoughts are on this, Scott. Um, Scott, I, I, I consider Vin a personal friend at this point, and I think he's totally freaking wrong. I do not believe for one second that a military drone did the Las Vegas shooting. I, I just don't. I don't see any compelling evidence to that, and in the limited amount of material I've listened to him discuss, he hasn't presented any evidence. He's presented plausibility, but plausibility and evidence are not the same thing. There's a zero evidence presentation. So what I see is an outrageous claim with zero evidence. Why he's doing it, I don't know. Will I hold it against him? No. My One of my best friends in the world still to this day is a guy that I've done business with in multiple uh, occasions named Neil Franklin. Many of you have heard of him before. Some of you have met him. He's a very smart man. He is one of the few people that I can sit down and have intellectual debate with who will really challenge me uh, on a high level. He is an incredible business mentor to me, and he also believes we never went to the moon, which I find preposterous. He'll blather on about some video that supposedly happened in Australia with a Coke bottle on the moon, and he blathers on with the typical stuff that people say, like there's not supposed to be any shadows on the moon, and that's like clearly you don't understand lighting and physics and, and, and lots of other things. But I, I, I absolutely believe that we went to the moon because it's a conspiracy of such magnitude that to keep all of the people who would have had to have been part of it uh, silent on the matter for this long is improbable to the point of absurdity. But that doesn't mean that I don't value all the other great things that Neil says, and it doesn't mean that I don't value all the other great work that Vin Armani does. 
What I haven't seen Vin Armani do, and I will be his friend, and I will see him as a valuable source of some information until such time that I see him do this, is compromise his integrity or his principles. If I thought, for instance, that he was saying this, even though he absolutely knew it was false, and doing it for sensationalism to grow his show, I would disassociate myself with him as what I consider at this point to be a loose partnership. And if I was just a listener, I would no longer listen. Once you violate integrity with me, then I'm done with you. Disagreement on what we believe, even when what you believe seems absurd, if it doesn't be, now I'm going to tell you, if this becomes the daily Vin rant, if six months from now we're still talking about the drone, I don't know how much I'll listen. I may skip the intro segments and get to his interviews, if that continues. Um, I really don't understand why he believes this. And I've listened to as much as I can tolerate, and I, again, I see no evidence. Uh, if you had a drone firing automatic weapons fire, hovering down, now the, the drone was hovering over, I can't remember the name of the place, I, he was on this morning about this, uh, some plant that's across the street, that's about the same distance, by the way, as the, the hotel where the guy actually did shoot people, then there would be massive amounts of brass laying on the ground. Right? I mean, they, they wouldn't have a brass catcher. I, I guess they could, but it doesn't sound very plausible to me. Um, I, I think what's going on here is for everybody. Because think of how many conspiracy theories there are about this and how many people that are saying rational people that have them that you'd have to write off if you did. This makes no sense. There is something here we're not being told. There is some sort of a lie. And I saw what kind of snapped Vin was... The, the sheer number of guns they said they, that he had. First it was 10, then it was 20, then it was 27. And I saw him post, stop effing lying when they said it was 27. A and here's how I feel about that. Either you are lying, or something really stinks. Even somebody who do mass murder is not going to lug 27 guns into this type of a situation. He's not. It doesn't make sense. Unless there was a reason for 27 guns to be there. I think it's possible. I'm not saying probable, but possible. This guy was some kind of an arms dealer. That maybe the FBI or CIA or NSA was working him as an asset. And something went terribly wrong with that. I don't know. I know that it's possible, though not probable, that something like an MK Ultra scenario went off. Because just because the CIA says, well, we, we did MKUltra back in, in the 50s and 60s, but it didn't work, so we quit and stuff, doesn't mean that they quit and stuff. Right? Do you really believe that? So is it possible that Vin's right? I dare not say this, but I will say. Since I cannot disprove it, it is possible. I think the probability lies somewhere along the lines of tomorrow night when I walk out on my back door and look at my dogs, I will see coming over the horizon the flying spaghetti monster. I think that's where the probability lies. But it could ha that could happen tomorrow too. Jack, there's no fly. There could be somebody that makes a balloon of the flying spaghetti monster just for the hell of it, and the wind catches it right, it comes over my trees. It could happen. But it's not. I'm not going to bet on it. It doesn't make sense to me. It makes less sense to me than the official narrative. But I have looked 
at the research Vin has done into many other things and found it to be some of the best, most cross-tea, dotted-eyed shit I have ever seen. And I will just choose to believe in this instance, for some reason, he's gotten onto this and convinced himself that it's true. And it is possible for very smart, very noble people to convince themselves of something, end up with it not being true, and yet they will further entrench themselves chasing anything that will justify their belief. That anybody can be irrational, including me. And trust me, if I disassociated myself with everybody I knew that held any belief that I found to be irrational, I'd be a lonely son of a bitch. I'd be lonely. Because most people, I find their religious beliefs to be irrational, yet I can respect them. And I know that many of you find my religious belief to be, um, which I don't even think is really of a religion, my spiritual belief, my life view, my worldview of deism to be irrational. And that includes many of you who are theists and many of you who are deists feel that my view is irrational. Does that mean that you won't listen to all the other good shit that I have? And the answer is no. Does it mean I won't listen to all the other good shit you have to offer? No. Now, the difference is I don't come on and talk about it every day, so I'm kind of hoping that Vin moves along with this, or if you're right, you need to produce evidence, not just, well, it couldn't have been what they said it was, so it has to be this. There has to be some evidence. And the fact that there's a parking lot that's an equal distance from, that's I saw that today, That wasn't evidence. And by the way, the, the mark you made was a Masonic symbol. I don't think that's evidence that the Masons are involved. I mean, I'm sorry, I disagree, but I can disagree with someone and still respect them, even if I, even if I think their position's ridiculous. I can respect their, their moral integrity. Vin, I respect his integrity, and I respect the majority of the work he does as being very, very factual and very, very spot on. Uh, in general, I always take that view. If you bring value to me, I will give you my attention. If you bring me no value, I won't. If you have integrity, even when I disagree with you, I will continue to be your patron of content or funding or whatever. Uh, but if you if you break the integrity component, to give an example, Mike Adams at Natural News, when you break the integrity, you're dead to me. You're dead to me. That's That's how I handle it personally. It's up to you to decide... Who you want to listen to, when, and why. That's freedom of choice at the highest level. Think about that when we get to today's song. Here's a pretty quick and simple one. More diversity today. Aaron says, how do you fill your continuous flow wicking beds? I've got the basics down with construction, but I was specifically wondering about water level layering. Specifically, is the water level set at the top of the lava rock or even with the top of the lava layer? When you add soil, are you using any kind of barrier to keep the soil from shifting or settling down into the rock? If not, have you ever had problems with outflow clogging? Short, simple answer, uh, question. No need for a whole segment or anything. I'm sure you've covered it somewhere, but can't seem to find specific details. The way mine are built, the, they are, in, in my aquaponics system, my continuous flow wicking beds work like this. And I'm actually going to change the design because I've had some problems Uh, and I think it's more of a root problem than a dirt problem. There's a layer of lava rock, and then there's a, a stand-up. That stand-up goes to a T. That T is a piece of one-inch pipe that goes across the, the, the length of the whole bed. It has, like, hundreds of small holes drilled in it, and, then on, and the rock actually covers that. That sets the level, okay? 
Then there's about a two-inch level of perlite. I, I went to perlite on Nick Ferguson's recommendation with wicking beds. It works great because it's very good at wicking. Perlite is like puffed rock. It's like It looks like styrofoam. And it, it pulls water beautifully. Okay, So I have like a two-inch layer of perlite that's above the water level. And then my soil level layer. My soil layer is a mixture of really finely shredded mulch, perlite, and compost. And it works fantastic. To tell you the truth, because of some limitations, we've like, we, we really built the aquaponic system large. And one pump can only do so much. Because of one of the design problems I have, which is my system level is pretty high, I've actually shut all the water off to my continuous flow wicking beds. And the system level is only about an inch below the flow level that I had set with the overflow. And just that, so that is when the water comes out to return, okay, it is, it's only so low on the other side. That's why my beds are sitting so high up to make it work. So just the system level itself is, is, is feeding them. Um, what I'm going to go to in the future is you'll have your wicking bed, the lava rock, and the perlite, just like I said, but like a four-inch piece of pipe going all the way to the bottom. And a single stand-up, you can look down in there and see it, okay, where the water overflows. No tea. So you, I have one built this way. And what that means is, see, what you have to understand is you can actually bring the water level lower or higher than the lava rock or even the perlite. The water coming up above the perlite won't float the perlite up through the, the, the soil mixture. And what that lets you do is reach down inside that pipe and pull out that piece of, let's say, one-inch pipe that's stubbed up in there and put one down that's an inch longer, bring your water level up an inch higher. Cut it off an inch lower and stick it back in there, bring it down an inch lower. You can set it anywhere you want. What I do is try to take material um, that, that won't break down rapidly, so not cotton, that, that wicks, and I like so some cloth or rope, things like that, and put it all the way to the bottom and bring some of that up into the dirt, and that'll create a wicking action. The dirt itself will create a wicking action. The most important thing, in your wicking beds, you need to have at least, bare minimum, a one-inch layer of mulch on the top. If you have a wet bottom, water will wick up. But it takes less energy for it to evaporate than for it to wick up. And then the other thing you have to realize is you do not need water wicking to the top of your bed. You only need it wicking to the root zone. In fact, in many ways, that's preferable. That is damp, just below the surface, and when you dig really way down, it starts to get a little bit wet. So you can play with your levels if you create that adjustability for yourself. The other thing that controls your levels, you have to understand, is not just um, the, 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 the stand-up, but the speed that you allow the water to come in. If you turn the water pressure way, way up and overpower the overflow, you can flood your bed out. That's happened to me before by accident. Um, you can also run it so slow that it barely maintains a level. You can run it a little bit faster, and it'll maintain the level maybe just a half inch higher than the, the baseline. And you just play with this until you get the results that you're looking for. And those are the variables that you play with. So I, I hope that all makes sense. Um, next one. All right, next one. Um, I'll do my best with this. And even if I have the additional information, I'll point out it's still going to be you have to make certain decisions for yourself. 
uh, and I'll give you some general advice on how you might do that. Uh, but this is from Charles, and he says, Hi, Jack. I own a house on one acre of land in a suburban area. No HOA and outside of the city limits. I've just started listening to your podcast. I want to start the process of creating a homestead. My concern, however, is that half of my land behind the house is shaded via sweet gums, and I'm not sure how to use the space. I want to have a garden and a small farm with ducks, etc. Would you recommend clearing the trees or working with them? Thanks, Charles. The answer is, okay, who already knows what the answer is going to start with? Who's listened to this show long enough that you know the exact two words that I'm going to say? It depends. And it depends on so many things. Let me give you one of the key pieces of information that I do not have from you. <clears throat> I do not have where you are. And I'll, I'll tell you why that's important. Shade in Texas is very different than shade in Pennsylvania. When we lived in Pennsylvania, my wife planted a bunch of marigolds. And there was one little edge of the garden bed. They got shaded for about an hour and a half each day. That's all. About an hour. It, it got the shade. The shade hit it for about an hour and a half before the rest of the shade hit the rest of it. And the marigolds in that little piece were, if if anything, they were less than half the size of all the other marigolds by the middle of the summer. Because the amount of sun that they got there, <clears throat> the amount of heat that they got there in that climate, missing that hour and a half, two hours of sun compared to the others was a huge detriment to them. In Texas, they probably would be much healthier and happier by getting that sun later in the day when it's the hottest time of the day, when it's 100,000 degrees out. So you see, shade can be an asset or a detriment depending on where you are and what you're trying to grow. Sweet gums, not a high-value tree. And in my opinion, on some levels, a very annoying tree. They drop those little balls And all you got to do is step on one of those in your bare feet one time, and you have a hatred and a rage for them. Not on par with my hatred and rage for uh, rage for sand spurs in, in my climate, but uh, sweet gums, I, I do not appreciate sweet gum balls on the uh, bottom of a bare foot at all. However, they are a substantial tree that grows quite fast and produces a... Um, a wood that's not really useful for much, but it does give you shade, which is nice. And a forested backyard is kind of a nice thing to have. So this is my personal opinion. What I would do is I would determine the areas that make the most sense to garden in today. Now, this minute. Especially if you can do stuff out front, like you said, half of your yard is in the back. So that means if you have an acre, you have about a half acre in the front, half acre in the back. That probably means you're not sitting right out on the road. You kind of have one of those setback lots, that type of thing. Probably fairly well set back, maybe some side yardage and stuff. So I would look for, like, where's the optimal place to put a garden right now based on the following things? You need to be able to access it regularly. It doesn't need to be tucked away in a back corner somewhere far away from you. It should be somewhere that you can see it from one of the doors you exit your house from. And it should get a good sun uh, exposure, good solar exposure, and that's going to be your, your main garden spot. And then you need to think about this. If you have ducks, they have to be fenced out of your garden. Chickens are a problem in a garden, but ducks will eat everything. They'll eat the leaves right to the ground. They like to do it. The smaller your flock, the less this will be a problem. I'm going to advise you that you're looking at a flock of a dozen ducks or less on an acre. I think that's going to be your best bet because you're going to have to put some sort of either heavily restrict their movement or have a small enough number of ducks that they're really not going to wear out a single area too much. 
if you have kind of a fenced backyard and you can keep your ducks back there and you put it out in your front or your side yard where the, it's outside of the fence, then you don't have to worry about your ducks getting to it. Right? And max out all of the production you can get where you don't have to cut a tree down before you cut a tree down. Because that shade for your ducks and your animals is a hell of an asset. They'll love it in there. It's a hell of an asset from a standpoint of all of the organic material that you can use to make compost. You can certainly do things like um, mushrooms if you want to back there. Though I've had no luck doing mushrooms, I'll just say that. But I've actually found that a lot of plants do really well in about 60% shade. So another thing I'm going to suggest you do is get a shade meter. And I'm going to give you a link in the show notes today to one you can get. This is a little device. You stick it in an area. Now, if it's a place that's all you know it's 100% shade, don't bother. But it will actually tell you how much sun and how much shade that area gets. Not what you think it gets, but what it really gets. And you may find you have some areas that you're getting sun about 60% of the day, and assuming you're in a more southern climate. Um, peppers do awesome with shade. I have 70% yes, 70% shade cloth on my aviary, and I was afraid it would be too much shade, and a lot of plants don't do well in there. Peppers do dynamite in there. Sweet potato do dynamite in there. Now, understand the difference. They get 70% shade all day, which means they get 30% sun all day in Texas summer. You got it? But lettuces did really great in the raft beds in there when I was growing lettuce in there, even with that much shade. So, Think about elevated beds, wicking beds, where the ducks are going to roam, because that way they won't bother it. Anything you can do to get them up, build them at, you know, you're, you're kind of like waist and uh, to chest level. Um, do a lot of stuff like that wherever you get the good sun. Consider opening up, sometimes with trees, you don't have to actually cut a tree down. You can open a tree up to let more sun in. Consider strategically moving, removing a few trees to create a sunny area and leaving the majority. Right? You got to you know think about the totality here. If you want to put in a bunch of your own trees like apples and pears and stuff like that, then you're going to have to remove some trees most likely. Because again, if you have a half acre, so I don't really know, so that's the other piece of information. Where are you? And what climate are you in? What are your real goals here? What do you really want to grow? What do you not want to grow? Um, but how much do you have that isn't shaded? Because if you have a half acre that isn't shaded, most people will have to work their ass off before they maximize that half acre. And they will reach a point where they will say, this is enough. I want you to think about some of the suburban uh, permaculture builds you've seen where people have a tenth of an acre backyard. And they have 150 trees that they short prune and dozens of perennials and berries and gardens and all of that on a tenth of an acre. One of the problems, and I struggle with this too, when you have a bigger piece of land, is to visualize, well, where's that small piece that I manage that way? And if you, if, if you have to, you might end up having to put in like a low fence or something to constrain yourself to the footprint. It's a lot like if I tell you to design a living room as far as furniture, but I don't give you any walls. It's hard. But if I say, well, here's a room, here's a doorway, here's a fireplace, 
You know, here's how tall the roof is. Then you're like, okay, well, the couch goes there, the TV goes there, easy chair goes there, maybe a love seat over there, end table. It's, it's really easy because you have kind of – so even if you don't put up a fence, you might have to just, just peg it out. Just put some stakes in the ground. And then all of a sudden you can see, well, now I know what I can work with. Like Those are some things I think would help you. But my general view on cutting trees is only cut what you have to. You can always cut another one, but you can never put one back up. And maximize everything you can do before you cut one, before you think you need to cut one, unless you're doing something you know, on scale. If you're doing true farm scale stuff, then yeah, you're probably going to have to do you know design a pasture, design uh, pathways for tractors and things like that. But for for home scale, homestead scale stuff, follow that, and I think you'll have the best results. Last one of the day. This comes in from Dylan. Dylan says, "Hi Jack, sent you a message last week. I believe saying we were going to be building a tiny house on an acre, in reaction to a bankruptcy announcement." We actually decided just to move into a smaller house within the city so we don't have to deal with the feat of building a house. Also, I listened when you said tiny houses aren't practical. Moving into a smaller house is going to decrease our financial footprint and allow us to pay our student loan debt quicker. Dylan! Okay, Dylan, guess what? Good for you! Guess what? A small house is not a tiny house. small house is a small house. A small house generally is attached to the ground. It appraises as real estate, which means you can have a thing called dun -da -da -dun -dun -da, an exit strategy because there's all kinds of people. We call them buyers out there that can go to a bank and say, I want to buy a house. And the bank says, is it really a house? And they say, yes, it's a house. Here's the information on it. And the bank says, okay, let's get a qualified appraiser out there. The qualified appraiser goes, this house is worth $115,000. And then the bank says to the buyer, buyer, if you can come up with 10%, 3%, 20%, depending on the type of loan, we will give you the balance up to $115,000 total value of the house. And the buyer says, I want to do that. And then he signs a piece of paper and then they give him a check that's his certificate for debt till he dies called a mortgage, which means grip of death. That's what mortgage means. And then he takes the delivery of your house and you get money and you get to leave. That's what happens with real estate. If you want to travel around, there's something else sort of like that. It's called an RV. Now, yes, you'll take a big depreciation hit if you buy it new, but if you buy it smart and used, you can often get back what you had in it. There's a thing called a blue book value of an RV, and when you go to a bank and say, I want to buy an RV, they go, do you have a job? And you go, yes, I have a job. They go, how much money do you make? I say, make this much money. They go, this is what you qualify for. And you go, okay, great, I have an RV that costs that much. I want to buy it over here. And they say, What is the make and the model and the condition of that RV? And then they look it up and they check your credit and they go, yes, this RV is worth what you want to borrow. We will loan you up to this percentage of that. And you say, okay, and you get the loan you buy it. Okay, that's how that works. Exit strategy. Now, you build a tiny house, a true tiny house. One of these things where you get one of these big-ass trailers and you build this eight-foot-wide, extremely tall, dangerous monstrosity that's going to go rolling down the road on its way to terminal death and blowing tires out and hitting overpasses and all that other shit. But you pull it off, and you actually do a really good job of it. But you sink fifty or $60,000 into it. And then you decide, I hate living this way. I hate hearing my partner take a dump every time they take a dump right there next to me. I hate that I have no room for anything. I hate this. I want to find some other dummy that thinks they're going to like this, and I want to sell it. 
And the person goes, I want to buy it. And you go, give me the money. And they go, I don't have it. So you go to the bank and the bank says, it's not real property. It's not an RV. It has no appraised value. And we will not give you a loan. Piss off. You have to buy it for cash. Or if you can get a personal loan, you can use that portion to buy it. But that's it. Do you see the difference? Do you see the difference here? Now, let me restate something. The young person who gets a job framing houses or something, and they learn the skill, and they build with their own two hands a tiny house, and they use it as like that thing in their life to launch themselves into adulthood with. And they find a piece of land somewhere, and they park their tiny house there, and their whole goal in life is to one day build a real house there. That person will probably own a large corporation by the time they're 35, and it's a brilliant idea. I have no problem with people that cost-effectively home-build tiny houses to learn from the experience, and if they don't get a dime back from it, it's still paid off. Who rock? Because if nothing else, you can sell it for the raw material as scrap. And it's probably worth something, some $10,000, $15,000 you can get for just about any of them from somebody that can come up with the money. So there's always some sort of a recovery. But when I see these people... Spending sixty, seventy, eighty thousand dollars to build a disaster on wheels and more, I've seen. You might, I mean, there is no financial justification for this. Now, I believe in freedom and liberty, and if you want to do that, you can do that. But if you want to take seventy thousand dollars and mail it to me, I won't stop you from doing that either. It's a dumb, 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 dumb infinity dumb idea. Okay. It's a disaster. These people that you see on TV, we're going to have our tiny house and we're going to be able to travel and take our home anywhere we want. No, you're not. No, every one of those builds you see, you see a tire blow off the rim while they're building a freaking house, right? You see the truck almost go into a ditch and they got a professional that knows what he's doing delivering it for them. And then this bimbo and this, this bimba, what do we call it? We call it a male bimbo. The male bimbo and a female bimbo are going to move this house, right? I'm a nurse practitioner, and I'm a this, and we've and we've never driven a truck in our life. But we're gonna, and then they're gonna they're gonna go from Seattle to freaking Tallahassee, right? It's, it's, it's a fantasy land, Disneyland case of idiocy. I'm sorry, I'm sorry to run on your parade. It is, it doesn't work. You can't do that. It's not practical. If you build a tiny house on wheels, the concept that it can move if you do is valid. And the way that it should work is this. If I ever buy another piece of land, I'm going to pay somebody with a proper vehicle, meaning a truck you need a CDL to drive, to come get this thing and put it where I want it in this new place. Not you think you're going to hook up your Ford F-250 to it and drag it 9,000 miles across the country like it's an RV. If you want to live that way, buy an RV. If you want to scale down and live on a smaller property and a smaller home that costs less money, buy a smaller house. Tiny houses are a way to dispose of money unless they're properly utilized at the right stage in a person's life and done with a given level of intelligence. Someone that sinks forty or $50,000 into one of these things could have bought an RV that would do every single thing they really were looking for better and would be easier and more practical to sell to recover some of their investment two, three, or five years from now than any teeny house will ever be. Small house, real estate. Tiny house, rolling disaster. Got the difference? There you go, Dylan. And I applaud you for making the decision to downsize your financial costs 
pay off your student loans by buying a small house. I think it's a genius idea. And I'm so glad you didn't try to build a disaster on wheels. Because all you would have ended up doing is hating yourself and emailing me later, telling me I was right and making me sad. Because most of the time that I get emails from people telling me I'm right, do not make me happy, they make me sad. And that's at the big macro level of stupid things our government's going to do, but it's even more true of individuals who hurt themselves financially because they bought solar panels from some jackass that went door-to-door in their house, and they dumped 30 grand into them, and they're never going to get their money back. And it's even now it's actually even hard for them to sell their house because they have a contract that the, the, the panels have to stay with the house and the new homeowner has to pay for them, and he ain't going to get his money back either. That makes me more sad than the fact that, yeah, they're going to have you know taxes by the mile, and people are finally believing, yeah, Jack's right about that and been right about that for like eight years now. Yeah. So, happy for you, Dylan. Anyway, guys, if you like this show and the work that I do, please do consider supporting us by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. Today I have a review for you that I think or feel that I should have done a long time ago for my item of the day at tspaz.com. Remember, you go to tspaz.com, you do your online shopping at Amazon, and no matter what you buy, you help support the Survival Podcast. However, you have lots of reviews there, so you can see all the different things that I recommend. And today I'm responding to somebody this week, who last week actually, who asked me about my opinion on a dehydrator. If you're going to buy a dehydrator for dehydrating food, you want an Excalibur dehydrator. Excalibur. You don't want anything else. I am not a brand snob. I know that I bleed DeWalt. If you cut me, DeWalt yellow comes out of my veins. I understand that. I love DeWalt tools. But you'll hear me say, well, Porter Cable makes a pretty good tool, too. Or in this particular instance, if you don't already own tools, this is a really good deal over here from Rigid. By the way, Rigid does warranties on their batteries, and DeWalt doesn't. You'll hear me like give you other options and say, it's okay to do this. If you buy anything other than an Excalibur, you're wrong. I hate saying I know it's not like a dick, but I'm trying to I'm trying to you know like have your back here and everything else is shit in comparison at the consumer level with dehydrators there's no reason not to buy an Excalibur. Now, once you've decided you want an Excalibur, which means you've decided you want a dehydrator, okay? That's how you know you want an Excalibur. Then I think you're really down between two models and only two models and they're not the most expensive ones. One's the least expensive one and one's kind of the mid-tier one. It's the 2900 ECB nine tray and the 3900B nine tray dehydrator. What's the difference? The 2900, which is the economy model, is 133 bucks. The 3900 is the deluxe model is 196. It's only about 60 bucks different. You think based on my track record or what I recommend, I'd say just buy the better one. Not so much. Maybe, but you should just make your own decision based on this following knowledge. The difference is that the 3900 is warranted for 10 years. And the 2900 economy is warrantied for only five. Okay, the main reason that is the three main components that can that can break in this thing are the heating element, the fan, and the thermostat. the The 3900 is made with kind of a beefed up version thereof of the three. It has a better thermostat, a better heater, and a better fan. So buy it for the extra 60 bucks. Hold on, you're talking about a product. On the cheaper one, that is still warranted for five years, and each one of those components is about thirty bucks if it breaks, and if you can work a screwdriver, you can replace it. They're that simple to replace, and if it does break, they're not going to send you a new one. They're going to send you that component. So if you had it for four years and one of those three broke, 
they're still going to give you a free one, the same as the other one. If it broke in your six or seven, it's 30 bucks and you've replaced it and you've had your 60 bucks to work for you in your life for that long. Still, I would lean toward the more expensive one with the better equipment, best you can afford under the circumstances. One little thing they changed, though, about the 3900 from the time I bought mine. Mine starts at 95 degrees, and it goes up to 155 degrees, which is what the, the economy model does now. The one that did uh, the, 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 the uh, 3900 now goes from 105 to 165. Here's what I think happened. The thermostats they're using both kind of have the same, even though they're a little bit different, one's a little bit more beefed up, a little bit less likely to fail, have the same range. And you, have, you can go higher or lower, but you have to pick how far, you know, within that, where you go from bottom to top. They wanted to push it up to 165 degrees so they could sell to people that are afraid of beef jerky, I guess, which is stupid, because the other one works just fine for beef jerky. And to push it up to 165, they had to bring the bottom of it up 10 degrees. That's my best guess. This is retarded. I'm sorry, and if you don't like that word, I've explained my use of that word before, and it applies here. There is no need to ever dehydrate anything ever, infinity, at 165 degrees. Dehydrating is dehydrating, not cooking. It is the removal of water. That's all it's supposed to be. Nothing, nothing should be dehydrated at 165 degrees. However, I like to dehydrate vegetables as low as possible, and I do most of my dehydrating on the lowest setting, which on my unit, even though it's the better one, before they changed it, is 95 degrees. And guess what? It works just fine. So I would lean toward the lower end one and less. If you're going to buy one or two of these things and you're going to make a batch of beef jerky a day and sell beef jerky to your friends and neighbors and people on, uh, on Swarm City, then I would get the one with the 10-year warranty. If you're going to run it like a commercial machine, yeah. But if you're going to use it 15, 20 times a year like most of us do, then I would get the less expensive one and pocket the difference. If you really spend a lot of money, like $229 and up, you can get one with a timer built into it. Well, I have a link for you in my review where you can get a timer for $11. An external timer, you plug it in, and it's got a, you, even I can work. I hate timers. Timers are my mortal enemy. Okay, I hate timers. This one's great. You plug it in, you want two hours, you set it to two hours, it runs. It's mechanical. You want 12, you set it to 12, it runs. When it gets to the end, it shuts off. And then you have a timer that you can use for things other than your dehydrator instead of spending an extra $90 to $100 or more to have a timer built in that would be another thing that could fail that if it fails, your whole thing doesn't work. Got it? See, this is how I think. Right? Oh, and they have other really expensive shit. Like you can get a clear door on it so you can watch your food dehydrate. Listen to me. Please listen to me. Don't pay money for stupid shit like this. I'm, you don't need it. It's, it. it's another retarded thing. Watching tomatoes and peppers dehydrate is not a spectator sport. It's not exciting at all. You don't see anything happen in real time. You can look in there and say, oh, yeah, they, they kind of look done. Or, no, they don't. But you know what else you can do? You can open the door and look in. It does. It's not an oven. It's not an easy-bake oven where you're trying to cook a, a freaking cupcake with a light bulb. Okay? It, you can open it up for an hour if you want to. It's not going to hurt anything. The air still flows through there. It's fine. It's fine, especially if you're not trying to hold it to 165 degrees like an idiot. Right? Where do I do? Where, well, I don't even make jerky much anymore because I'm a big, I'm so big on biltong, which you don't even, you just hang it up and let it cure. Uh, but when I do make jerky, I, I do it at about 120 to 130 degrees, not 165, not 155. 
If you're trying to hold it way up in temperature, yeah, taking the door off makes it harder to hold at the higher temperatures. But the temperature you should be doing your defrosting at or dehydrating at, no problem. Anyway, I have the, the article. I'm not going to go through everything I covered in the article today on air like I usually do. You can go look at it yourself. Again, you can find it at tspaz.com. Look at uh, the review that was done for October 9th, 2017. I went into everything on this one. I put a lot of work into this. I have a lot of questions about dehydration. I give you resources uh, to learn more about dehydrating in general. I give you examples of things we've done. I give you links to supporting products. And I give you my bottom line uh, recommendation on what to do. And, yes, some of you may be better off buying the higher-end model, but make a fully informed decision. Because this is the time of year where if you don't have a dehydrator, it's time to look at getting one. You know, All this stuff coming in at the end of the gardening season, you got to do something with it. Because here's the deal. It's so much more practical for most people than canning. Most people throughout their season, you know, they'll have like this month or this week, they'll have like a dozen extra tomatoes. More than they can use. And what do I do with them? I'm not going to can 12 tomatoes. Like slice them up and dehydrate them. Throw them in a jar. And two, three weeks from now when I have another 10 or 12, I can do it again. And do it again. Two or three times a year and I got a big storage lot stuff stored up. So check it out. The Excalibur 9 Trade Dehydrator. And again, Always, you can support the show by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That brings us to our song of the day today. The song of the day today is by Devo. It's called Freedom of Choice. And that's a song that I think a lot of you would really like. This is old. It's almost as old as me. No, it's not. It's not quite that old. Uh, it's from 1980. It's uh, from their album Devo. And uh, I think uh, Whip It was the only other song they ever had that was a hit. Whip It Good, right? You, you probably remember Whip It. This song, many of you probably don't know what I'm talking about, but you've heard it. It's been a lot of TV commercials and stuff like that, and it's highly misunderstood. Let me read to you this from Song Facts. This is often misinterpreted as a song celebrating personal freedom. It is actually commentary on how people really want choices made for them. The song statement is made in the last chorus. Freedom of choice is what you've got... Freedom from choice is what you want. People are so quick to pay lip service to words like freedom and liberty and say that they believe in freedom and liberty, but they seldom exercise freedom and liberty because freedom and liberty, if you're to exercise them, come with equivalent responsibilities. And they don't just come from equivalent responsibilities of like moral responsibilities. So what I mean by that, I believe you have a right to own a gun. I believe you have a right to own a lot of things in addition to a gun, but I believe the fact that you are a sentient human being, you are endowed by your creation, no matter how you think you were created, even if it's random happenstance of evolution. The fact that you're here means you have a right to preserve and protect your own freedom, and you have a right to own a gun. And if somebody else can own a gun and use it against you, you have a right to own the equivalent to defend yourself from said same. Okay? That makes sense? Also, you have a responsibility to not take your gun and leave it you know, loaded, laying on a tree in your front yard where a kid could find it. That's a moral equivalency of responsibility. But more what I mean, more what this song about, though, is with responsibility that's concurrent with freedoms and liberty, is if you have a freedom and liberty and you choose to exercise it, you are not immune from the consequences of that choice. And most people wish to have it both ways. They want to have their cake and eat it too and still have their cake. 
So they want someone, and even if they are going to have the consequences, they want the comfort of blame. They want to be able to say, well, I was going to buy the Remington, but stupid Jack told me to buy the Weatherby, and now I'm sad because I should have bought the Remington. If you buy the Weatherby, you really won't feel that way. I'm just making an example that is internal instead of external. Right? But people want that. I remember my father-in-law, he had to have a pickup truck, and nobody thought that was a good idea. And eventually he decided he didn't like the pickup truck. This is 15 years ago. And he wanted to get rid of it. And he said, he, talking to my, my, my wife and her sister and inferring the third sister as well, you girls always wanted me to have a pickup truck. My wife let it go. Her response to me later is, when we were 12, Right? When we were 12. No, but he wanted to defer that responsibility. And nobody's immune to this, even me. But it's what degree is this true? And I think the average person in our country today, this is what they want to do. They want to talk about freedom and liberty, but they don't want to see it and they don't want to be responsible for it. Freedom and liberty means everybody doing what you think is right, and then, then it's freedom and liberty. But when somebody does something you disagree with, well, there should be a law against that. That's not how freedom and liberty works. And then... You want a bitch that you can't do something when the reality is you probably could if you tried. I hear people all the time, I'd like to run a business, but I can't do it because there's too much red tape. Have you tried? You know? Well, I, I'll never buy a house because then you have to pay property tax, and that's just renting it from the government. Well, if you're renting a house, you're paying somebody else's rent to the government, and you're paying them. So you're, you're making an excuse for not doing the harder thing that's actually better for you. That's what this song's all about. People bitch. They bitch all the time. If only I could. If only I would. Let me read you a quote from one of my favorite authors. I've read recently before, but it, it, it definitely needs to be read again uh, with this song. Robert Anton Wilson. I regard myself and my friends as the power elite. That way I don't have to worry if someone else is manipulating me. They're trying, but we're outsmarting them every step of the way. Most people want to believe somebody else is in charge. Then they don't have to take responsibility. Then they have the supreme pleasure of perpetually complaining that somebody else is in charge. And it would be better if only they were in charge. As long as I think I'm in charge, I've got nothing to complain about. I've got to take responsibility for all of it. Um, that's just perfect for this song. And with that in mind, give it a listen. And remember, it ain't about what it sounds like it's about. It ain't about not having freedom of choice. It's about having so many freedoms of choice that people choose not to exercise because it's easier to blame somebody else for their problems. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.